Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And I'd like to say we rely on your support to make these conversations happen. So would you consider becoming one of our patrons? Every bit counts. It's really easy. Just go to politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us and click on that patron app. The, uh, it's a button at the top of the, the page there. And it'll really help us continue to do what we're doing, such as talking to the awesome kinds of guests like we have today. And oh, baby, we got a good one today. We have Chuck Rocha and we might have Mike Madrid here joining us in a few minutes. But let me introduce you to Chuck. Chuck Rocha began his career as a union worker in Texas and became the youngest officer elected there. He went on to become the national political director of the United Steelworkers of America at the ripe old age of 29. And he was also the first person of color hired to that position. Fast forward to 2010, Chuck founded Solidarity Strategies, a nonprofit and political consulting firm built on diversity, inclusion, and mentorship opportunities for the next generation of minority professionals. He went on to advise on both Bernie Sanders campaigns and is the first Latino to run a presidential campaign. In fact, he's the author of the book, Teal Bernie, the inside story of how Bernie Sanders brought Latinos to the political revolution. Chuck Rocha, thanks for coming in, man. How, how are you doing? I'm super stoked. I'm good coming to you live from Washington, D.C., where it's still not spring. <laughs> That's great. And I know you had a special event last night, which I'll ask you about. But uh, I, I want to know a little bit about your background. But first, I'd love for you to tell us about Luis, Eileen, Daisy and Jocelyn, who they are and what they mean to you. So what you have just talked about is the team that is solidarity strategies. And people always ask me, this is my 32nd year working in politics. And people are always like, well, Chuck, what's going to be your legacy? You're the old brown goat in Washington. You've done this for so long. You know, so many people, my legacy will never be the campaigns that I've won. My legacy will never be how many times I was on TV or on one of these fancy podcasts. My legacy will be those names that you just read. I am more proud that in the 11 years of Solidarity Strategies inception and starting the firm on January 1 of 2010, we have hired, mentored, and employed over 108 young black and brown operatives in Washington, D.C. That's more young black and brown kids than every other political consulting firm in DC combined. And I did that on purpose. I wanted to create a space to have diverse voices come in and do this work for a lot of years, Corey. I was the only senior person of color in any strategy meeting. And it, when I started the firm, I wanted to be very intentional about creating almost uh, an incubator, 
for young people to come in and mentor under me to be able to fly away, start their own firms, work on Capitol Hill, work for PACs, nonprofits. And so the people you just described are immigrants. They're children of immigrants. Most of them are first generation college students. Their families come from Venezuela. Mexico, El Salvador, Puerto Rico, and Spain, just in the names that you've mentioned there. And that's just a small little bit of the people that have been at my firm and that are there now. And it's those people, it's those young operatives who run my firm every day that make me better at what I am. I'm an old Mexican from East Texas. It sounds like an old white man when I talk. These are real <laughs> Latinos with real Hispanic experiences from all over the country that I bring in that makes me so much better and makes Solidarity Strategies the most culturally competent political consulting firm in the country. Yeah, that's uh, it's a really encouraging to hear and it gives us hope for, you know, what the upcoming election is going to look like. And, you know, many cycles after that are going to look like that you're equipping and, and nurturing talent uh, that's going to be involved in our in our democracy for the next generation. And Corey, not to interrupt, but it, this is something for your listeners to understand when they think about the work that I do, Corey, the people you get to talk to on this podcast, they think about the power structure of American politics, whether it's Democrat or Republican. There's one thing that I've learned is that if you're a regular working class kid, whether you're black, white or brown, it just happens that more of those kids are black and brown is that it's hard to break into that power structure. Me and Mike Madrid talk about this on the Latino Vote podcast, that me and Mike are one of just a small fraction of American people that's got to sit in the room, as they say in Hamilton, where it happens. Yeah. If you don't have money and access and your daddy or your mama or your cousin ain't already a lobbyist or a lawyer or working on Capitol Hill, where's that working class kid going to break into politics? Well, they become an intern. Well, they want you to work for free as an intern. We, our kids can't afford that. Or you've got to know somebody. Well, if your family doesn't know anybody and you don't have political connections, how do you ever become that operative? And that's the space where I've really been trying to break down walls so regular folks can have a bigger access to that power to give strategy that then comes up with, guess what, guys? A lot of good politics because you know how working class people think and you're good at messaging to them. Yeah, that's a great point. And by the way, your, your new podcast that you do with Mike is just uh, the Latino vote uh, it is such an important conversation to, to have, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you first, uh, by the way, it's a first, you, you're the first person who's accused me of having a fancy podcast, but we'll just let that let it go for a second. Um, but I, I've been fascinated to learn all about your accomplishments, but I'm even more fascinated and quite inspired, actually, that you've done all this despite never having attended college, being a single father at 20 years old. And having a criminal record. In fact, you're you're in DC right now to attend the Empathy to Action reception. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that, but also share about your background, how you overcame so many obstacles, and how you ended up becoming so successful in politics. You know, my story is just a a unique story in an ocean of unique stories of folks who normally don't have access to what I was just talking about. Most of Americans don't go to college. And this will shock many people because I got to run a presidential campaign. I'm a New York Times op-ed contributor. I've wrote a book, all those fancy dancy things. Well, guess what? <laughs> I ain't never been to college a day in my life. I never went to school, right? And I had a baby when I was a baby, when I was 20 years old, uh, took full custody of that boy when he was just four months old. Uh, that's a story for a different day. But I raised my son by myself with a lot of help from my mother and my grandmother. So I know what it's like to be a single adult, I mean, a single father and have to do this, dealing with the criminal justice system, the thing you were just mentioning, I have a criminal record, I openly talk about mistakes that I have made. And the more I talk about the mistakes that I made, 
You know, it's so interesting that people open up because I find that everybody makes mistakes. Everybody deserves a second chance. And when we're doing criminal justice reform, and I'll get to the great reception we had last night here in DC, is that I'm living proof that second chances work. And when people come to me all the time and talk about, you know, the challenges, you know, I tell people to be honest. And when you make a mistake, own your mistake, but also own your redemption. And the theme of the conference last night was empathy to action. And Empathy to Action was put on by Dream Core Justice. You know, it was a group started by Van Jones and some other folks to really look at the criminal justice reform system and bills that are wrongly written. Like there's different punishments for crack cocaine versus cocaine, because they think back in the day, crack was just used by poor black people, right? So there's a different uh, way you sentence people if you're a rich Miami business owner who's smoking cocaine instead of crack. So it's little things like that, like nonviolent felonies and the way we look at these things. Like our criminal justice system has been built around profits, which is wrong, right? And there's a lot of things. But the one thing that I do know and that I've learned is that I know what it's like to walk around with a scarlet letter on you every day as somebody who's been in the system. It's what we like to say. Um, somebody as we called impacted, right? Somebody who's made a mistake. And I now get to own the nation's largest Latino consulting firm. My firm has done millions, actually tens of millions of dollars worth of work that we are so proud of doing for our community. And I like to go to these things. And I spoke last night to say that I'm living proof that you can turn empathy to action and that we shouldn't be judged by one mistake. And that if we give folks who go into prison, folks who've made a mistake, a second chance and give them the equipment when they come out to go into the market, they can become Chuck Rojak because I am that person, right? Because what you just described, the criminal record, having a baby when I was a baby, not going to college, any of those three things should have limited me from ever being any kind of a success, especially in politics where the microphones and the cameras are on you all of the time. So I've used that exposure to talk about and lift up these issues so that some other poor kid somewhere who makes a stupid mistake like I did can know that that does not have to define the rest of their life. And if they work hard and put their nose down and play by the rules, this is why America is so great, is that we're a forgiving country and we allow people to actually achieve the American dream if you'll work hard and do the right things. Right, right. But to your point, it seems like the deck is stacked more for some uh, than others. And that's some of some of what you're trying to address with the work that you're doing now, isn't it? It is. And I think that that's why we choose to work for big nonprofits that are doing social justice stuff, like helping educate kids in poor neighborhoods, you know, advocating for different immigration policies where, you know, I got to go to the Stanford Business School last year as part of a Latino entrepreneur program. I was like, I, as I just said, boys and girls, I ain't never even been to junior college and you want me to go to an executive program at Stanford. But while I was there, I got to meet a whole bunch of business people who were entrepreneurs, right? And, and this is the Democratic lefty here who ran Ber uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign talking about what it's like to be a brown entrepreneur. So here we go. But <laughs> I realized that I learn a lot from these things because they talk about, and you get this, Corey, the, the, the lack of access to capital by certain demographics because they have no wealth and all of their wealth may be in just their home. And how do they get a business loan to start that business or that taqueria or that cleaners or that construction company? And when I was listening to all this, it just was so eye-opening for me as a small business person here in Washington, D.C. I have an LLC. I've learned about taxes a lot in the last 12 years, which has made me rethink, am I really a Democrat? Because I was like, well, why am I paying 
38% taxes at the highest federal rate, and then another 10% of DC taxes, which makes my tax rate 48%, while Amazon and Google and other folks ain't paying nothing. Like, I don't mind paying my taxes. But what I don't understand is why is working class folks like me paying almost 50 cents on the dollar and other folks get to pay five or 6% in a tax? Like, I was, so that part of learning the hardships of entrepreneurs who are poor, a lot of black and brown people that are poor, then it made me understand really the underbelly of our business economy that I really wasn't exposed to as a young man. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of good stuff there. And uh, it, it affects so many in so many ways that we don't even see. I'm, I'm actually going through a, um, a process right now applying for an SBA loan and uh, stuff that happened back in 2015 is is uh, getting in our way. Certain obstacles to us being able to um, to uh, set up Corey, a business. Let me interrupt and, you. Let yeah. me interrupt you and tell you something funny. Yeah. Is that when I started my firm, I, I applied to be one of these minority vendors for the federal government. It was an 8A through the SBA. You made me think about it. Yeah. You want to talk about some folks that will find some things in your background. They didn't have a problem that I'd had a criminal record and did my time, and I was done with that years ago. They were more, they found a truck that had gotten repoed from me 20 years ago that I had to go back to and figure out at some credit union at the factory of how to get a letter that they had charged off 12 years ago, talking about how people are still punished for mistakes back in the day. Again, it makes me a really good political consultant to know what it feels like when you walk outside of your apartment and your truck is gone. I tell that story a lot to politicians to be like, that's the kind of story we need to be talking about because lots of people live through that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll just I'll share a little bit about this with you, because there is an interesting kind of uh, appendix to this whole chapter in our lives that happened just last August. So that that chapter in my family's life, uh, a lot of it was the, the, the first domino fell in like early 2008 and then a big one fell in September of 2008. And as a small business owner, all that stuff really affected us. You know, we, we felt the, the ups, the ebbs and the flows of, of what was going on or the tidal waves of what was going on. And I, uh, I made a really hard decision at the very end of 2012 because it got to a certain point where we took out one loan after another to try to meet our, our, our obligations. And I had this just awful choice. It was like the, the, the businessman's equivalent of Sophie's choice. Do I pay my mortgage or do I meet payroll? And I decided to meet payroll uh, because we couldn't do both. And it just set off this really long process of what ended up us uh, having to lose our house. And I had small kids at the time. It affected, you know, had a really important part of their development. And uh, we ended up having it, I, it took a two years to try to apply for a refi and then another two years to do, apply for a loan mod. Long story short, we, we did end up losing our house, but I got a call from Wells Fargo last August. <laughs> this is, so this is August of 2021. And they said, um, is this Mr. Nathan? Yeah. Uh, so we want to tell you that we made a mistake in 2013 and you should have been approved for your refi and certainly should have been approved for a loan mod. So uh, we're really sorry. I'm like, my kids' whole lives have been affected by that. I, I can I can draw a straight line between us, the stress of that time leading up to us losing our house, and you know, again, just being really candid here, like all of that uprooting them and, and uncertainty. One of my kids ended up on drugs and just falling in with the wrong crowd and. Um, it, it just really affected our lives. And I get a call from Wells Fargo and now, now applying for this SBA loan because we're trying to take over a small business here. 
And so SBA is asking me, oh, so you guys have to short sell your house? Like, yeah, yeah. But I couldn't tell him about the, uh, the phone call from, uh, from Wells Fargo last August. Anyway, that's, the, that, that's neither here nor there. But um, for, for our conversation, I, I'd like to get back to Chuck Rocha. You know, I, I'm, I, I, love, I love what you and Mike are addressing right now. It, again, your, your new podcast, The Latino Vote, is such an important conversation to have. So I'd like you to set up the problem that you're addressing. Could you give us a critique of perhaps if you want to critique your own party or maybe what Mike's, uh, Mike's been a long, lifelong Republican, what each party is, is doing uh, wrong in terms of engaging Latino voters? So the name of the podcast is exactly right. It's called The Latino Vote. You hear so much written or read or on TV about the Latino vote. And what me and Mike Madrid do is pull back the curtain on what both parties and folks are trying to do right and doing wrong when it comes to trying to reach our community. For, as you said, Corey, Mike is a registered Republican. I'm a registered Democrat. Both of us have been, you know, oppositions. Funny enough, we have worked against each other on many elections. Uh, but what brought us together was Donald Trump in the last election, right? Is that we both wanted to beat Donald Trump. And, and you're right. Me and Mike Madrid, we talk about it in this way, is that we both want the same thing for our community. That is much success, much exposure, much uplifting of the Latinos in our culture, in our community. And we disagree on the paths to get there. And we have these robust debates. He's a conservative. I'm a liberal. Uh, but we also find some really strange commonality. Like when we talk about blue collar workers and the lack of both parties really doing anything for the common person, me and you've just told two very personal stories of trials and tribulations that's been in our personal life. Well, guess what? When's the last time you saw Democrats or Republicans talking about folks who are just trying to make it and just wanting the government to get out of their way or give them a little bit of assistance or do there when they're down on their luck or other things like we've lost the personal aspect of campaigning. So with the Latino vote, we really talk about this emerging community that now is so massive because it's just been such a demographic explosion. Uh, and it's 70% Mexican. There's a lot of Puerto Ricans, lots of Cubans and Venezuelans. And we go under the hood and talk about what makes all those communities different. We talk about uh, strategies in campaigns that work and don't work. We talk a lot about, mainly Mike, about data and mm. the way that Latinos who aren't black, who aren't white, and where do we fall in the middle? We're literally, if you took black and white and mixed it together, you'd get brown. And that's who we are. You have a segment of us who think we're white, very much like want to be accepted as a European Spanish type immigrant. You have another group of us who are very indigenous and very dark and very like dark in a color, not dark in spirit, but that we align more with people of color and black people and the struggle of that community, right? And the ostracization of skin tone. Like there's so many different moving parts with a Latino culture. My God, you've probably listened to the great debate we had about what we even call ourselves. We spent yeah. almost a whole show talking about, is it Latinx? Is it Latino? Latino is Hispanic. it Hispanic? Is it Chicano? Yeah. Right. Is it all these things? And it was great because I think what people miss sometimes as well, Corey, if you listen to the podcast, and I know you have, is that me and Mike are also really different as people. That don't mean that we're not both extremely good looking Mexicans because we are, <laughs> but it's more around uh, Mike being this college professor and this data and numbers guy. He eats numbers for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. He loves that stuff. Well, I just told you, y'all, I ain't never even been to school, right? Like, I don't even know if I know how to get in a college campus. But I bring another aspect of this Mexican redneck, self-described Mexican redneck, 
who grew up in East Texas on a working farm, hauling cattle, hauling hay, cranking tractors, killing hogs, and all the things that Mike Madrid wouldn't know nothing about if you melted it and poured it on him. I'm just saying that we come from two different cultures, but on the voter file, we're both seen as Latino Mexican men who they assume act just alike, which is, gives you the premise of why we started the Latino Vote Podcast. Hi, I'm Will, your political host and a cisgendered liberal Democrat. And I'm Pastor Josh, your faithful host and a conservative Republican who really is not sure what cisgender means. If you're interested in politics and religion, make sure you check out our podcast, Faithful Politics. Each week we do a deep dive into a topic that intersects with both these subjects and try to understand them through a bipartisan lens. We bring in experts from the world of academia and those who work on Capitol Hill, as well as the White House. Available wherever you get podcasts. You mentioned a couple of times, and I mentioned it uh, in one of my first questions about you not going to college. Do you happen to be watching the um, the doc, the new documentary about Ben Franklin on PBS? No, but it's funny that you said that because I wrote it in my notes to start watching it. Okay, so I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. I'm just a sucker for anything Ken Burns does, but uh, this one in particular, they do mention that uh, Ben Franklin uh, stopped going to formal education, formal school. I think when he was 12 years old and then he went to work in his father's shop and then he went to work uh, as sort of an indentured servants of sorts for, for his, uh, his older brother. But uh, they said about his education, they said, well, because he didn't go to Harvard, uh, he, he, as a boy, he was in the Boston area. Um, he, he didn't know what he was supposed to know. So he just started going about trying to figure out how to know everything <laughs> to learn that. That's my the books, the books you see in my background. I, so I only pretended to go to college for a semester and a half, but have no formal education beyond that. Uh, so all the books in the background is it might not be exactly the same reasoning for as Ben Franklin. But at the very least, it's my insecurities of trying to overcompensate for, for you know, trying to figure out what all those college people know. <laughs> let's 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 tear this down like me and Mike normally say. Now, if you want to connect this conversation to politics, is which I know a lot about because it's all I've ever done girls and boys, 32 years, running campaigns, working for unions, nonprofits, you know, and then owning this consulting firm. It's what I do. Everything that I think about and people talk to me about, I see and try to figure out how does it interact with the public and politics. So what we're describing is an elite class of people who aspired, their parents did to send them to college, try to give them money to go to college, get loans. We all aspire to be educated because we've been taught as a society, as a society, rightfully so. The more college you have, the more opportunities you can have to escalate up. And now that I've become a business owner looking at resumes and where did they go to school and blah, blah. I don't do that, by the way. <laughs> but it's just a piece of like American success. Now, if you take a look back at who's running our campaigns, especially on the Democratic side, the folks that are at the highest echelon of running our campaigns do not have the stories we just talked about. Not that that makes them bad people. Let me be clear. They are good people and they're well-intentioned and they are trying with all their might to elect Democrats. But they have a different cultural experience where they have a great undergrad somewhere to skate school maybe or maybe an Ivy League school. They went on to get a master's probably somewhere. They own a multi-billion dollar or million dollar polling firm or media firm and there's only like 10 or 12 of them. They make millions of dollars. They bought houses out in the suburbs or down on the lake like they should have. And what I would do if I had that money again, it don't make them bad people. But when you have an exploding Latino population that makes up, you know, big portions of the electorate and we're respond, we're relying on what I call woke white 
well-intentioned consultants who all have master's degree, who know a lot about data and demography, don't, don't know anything about our neighborhoods and our people. That's where you start seeing a softening off of Latinos to Republicans, because now a Republicans are competing for that boat. And our consulting class hasn't kept track with the demographic growth. And so now we're being punished for that because you see a lot of ads and strategies that aren't focused around an intentionality around the Latino community. Yeah. Yeah. So I did want to ask you, you know, it's really encouraging to see a longtime Democratic strategist, you know, leading Republican strategist come together. There's obviously some common interest there in terms of what what is it with you and Mike in terms of your common interest to the state of our politics or more broadly, the state of our country uh, where you have a lot of differences in terms of policy, obviously. And, and tactical disagreements, as, as Mike might talk about it. But what's your common interest? The common interest is several legs of a stool. The first is representation, right? We say that if, if, if we're not in the room, if we're not at a decision-making level in campaigns, party committees, nonprofits, then we demand representation. So it starts there. Republican or Democrat, we should have more Latino, Republican and Democratic campaign managers, field directors, media operatives, like there should be more of us. And for a long time, and even till today, our community is shut out of that power structure. And that's where we started this podcast to be talking about how hard it is to break into that without connections, because it's literally the last bastion of good old boys. The U.S. Congress is more diverse than political consultants. When people say, well, there's only this many black people or brown people or women, like it is so much more diverse than every, even corporate CEOs, this, it pains me to say this, are more diverse than political consultants. It's the last bastion where nobody looks, and it's still a bunch of good old boys who help good old boys, and now a bunch of white women as well. Again, well-intentioned. They have, and this is what I like to say about white women. It's the same thing about the LGBTQ community, is that they've had to self-organize for years, God bless them, and they have positioned themselves in positions of power within my party as they should, and they should accept all of that, right? And so that's why you see a lot more white men and white women, but there's just been a lack of black and brown folks in that power. So representation is first. Second is investment in the community. Because we're such a younger demographic turning 18 quicker, every 30 seconds, a Latino turns 18 in America. The average age of a Latino in America is just 27. So when people say, why does Latinos not vote or Latinos are this, we're just younger and we're a newer immigrant. The other thing that we talk extensively about, about this on the podcast is that Latinos don't know who they, what they don't know yet. There is a whole group of African-Americans who have a lineage of literally being owned by white people in this country in their history. Now that's handed down in that struggle of the importance of voting the importance of the church, the over generations, well, that generational uh, fight or that generational hierarchy of what we've been through as a community is not there with Latinos because we just got here, literally just got here. So it's you can't look at Latinos as white people or black people because they have a different experience. So making sure that we have representation is also a big focus of it. And I think lastly, it's it's more so than representation, more so than policy, but it's more so of where we fit in the fabric of the country. 
And I think helping people understand what that's like, and we talk a lot about blue collar issues when we do that. I think that the new blue collar is going to be the new brown collar as we get older, because we're just coming of age so much quicker. And we are doing the jobs that, you know, poor folks have done for a long time, service industry, farming, anywhere you need people to work. Normally there's a Latino there jumping in to get that work done. So just as a follow-up to that, what can young what can younger black and brown folks do as well as uh caucasian allies do to to have better representation whether it's you know my longtime industry in the entertainment industry whether it's in politics or any other industry what can we do and then also from political side how how can campaigns or politicians better engage you said every 30 seconds, another Latino person is turning 18, is becoming a voter. How can what can we do better to engage and inspire young folks to vote? I think we have to it's the set. Let me ask the last one first. OK, how do you get a young person to vote? Well, here's some very elementary stuff for you that let me assure you works. Let's start by asking them. Well, Chuck, what the hell do you mean? Of course, we're going to ask them. No, you're not. Mm. Because let me tell you how campaigns work. I'm going to get to polls in a second, but go on. The campaigns work this way. You have a consultant like me that comes in and says, okay, how do we win this race? Well, we have to come up with this many votes, and it's called a win number, girls and boys. Well, normally in that win number, they're only talking to people who have the highest likelihood to vote. And we know because it's public record of every single body who votes in every single congressional district, and if they vote in Democratic primaries, Republican primaries, there's one thing synonymous with what Corey just said that's the most important thing. Well, if you're a new voter, you just turned 18. Well, you ain't never voted because you couldn't vote. And you probably, if you're 20 or 22, really never voted either, unless your mom and daddy are in politics, because nobody's ever asked you to vote because you're not what they call, quote unquote, a prime voter. You're not worth what that consultant says is enough return on investment for me to invest this many dollars into trying to get a non-voter to vote when I could be going to a voter who may be voting Republican and Democrat and trying to persuade them to vote for our candidate. So that's how every single congressional race in America is run. And in every one of them, there's nobody sending an 18 year old who just got voter registration, a piece of mail or a digital ad. They may happen to see a TV commercial because they're hanging out with their mom and dad in the evenings before they go out on the town to drink beer like I used to do. But that's the only reason they even see any advertisements. That's why Bernie Sanders campaign was so groundbreaking is we spent a lot of time talking to those young people because we knew that they liked Bernie Sanders. So we spent money to try to get them out and they still didn't show up at the rate we would have liked to see them, but we had got them to be and have better performance than anybody ever had because at least we spent the money to go try to talk to them. So it starts with getting to them. I know I have uh, all three of my kids are between the ages of 17 and 21 and, uh, I finally got on TikTok about a month ago. I got to tell you, there's not a lot of politics on TikTok, but my kids, that's all they're on. That's they, they don't watch broadcast TV. They watch YouTube. So last election cycle, and I, I'll tell uh, Christy Smith here, who's who's running a, uh, again against Mike Garcia here in my district, California 27, uh, that I didn't see enough of her on on YouTube ads. Uh, I, I don't see I don't see not just Christie, but any politician now that I'm, I'm on TikTok. I don't see anybody on TikTok dominating. And it seems like a lot of folks just end up uh, driving campaigns like they're driving down the freeway, but looking through the rearview mirror the whole time. It's like 
you know, Obama discovered Facebook in 20, 2008. And then all of a sudden, oh, we got to be on Facebook. But by that time, it was it was something else. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm wondering what your insights are there and why nobody's on TikTok. So, first of all, let's go back to who's running all the campaigns. These old white people who run all the campaigns, old meaning old like me. So I'm not being differential to those old people because I'm an old man, too. There's a lot of gray in this beard. <laughs> and they and guess what they do to make money? They sell TV ads to make money. Mm. And, the, and they mainly want campaigns to buy TV ads because that's how they make money. Now, keep in mind, they've now all have digital shops and they make money of selling digital ads as well. Now, they're formula about why that they need to buy lots and lots of TV ads is goes back to what I just said. Think about this. It's all connected is that they say that the prime voters who we need are older white people and some black and brown folks over the age of 50 who always vote in all the election, Corey, like me and you. And we love our evening news because we want to see what the weather's doing or the traffic's doing. And so they target most of the advertisement to an older demographic who always votes because most campaigns don't have an unlimited budget. And that's in fact where the voters are watching who are the prime voters. It's not a bad strategy, but can you open that up? In the Latino Vote podcast, we talk about some new research that just been happening with this great group called the Equis Lab, who did an analysis of where all the Latinos are gathering their information on political work. Guess where Latinos are consuming more information than anybody? YouTube, YouTube TV. Okay. Just like you just described, there's nobody talking to them there. And on top of that, you have misinformation YouTube channels by certain uh, Spanish speaking Republicans in places like Miami that are talking about, you know, Trump still being the president and all this crazy stuff. And you start seeing misinformation that starts affecting the community because there's not an alternative message there. So we have to change with the way that America is changing. And politics is one of the last bastions that's so slow to turn because as America is evolving, we still have the same group of people running all the campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Speaking of campaigns, th there's been a lot of talk about how the polls all got it wrong. And there's obviously good, some good reason for that. But there was some polling that was spot on, or so, more specifically, some good use of polling that was incredibly effective. Uh, Mike, you know, Mike Madrid, I, I think of his work that that he was uh, he was doing in, in 2020 with the Lincoln Project. Um, and, and Chuck, I mean, you share in, in, TO, in the book, T.O. Bernie. Uh, Bernie's surprising overperformance in both 2016 and 2020, as well as the work that you did this last cycle in um, in Nevada, uh, in that last general, had something to do with a better use of polling, right? So, so I'd love for you to share some of the ways that polling got it wrong, or that the whole way campaigns have been using polling is is all messed up, and then maybe share how you've been able to do better polling and use it more effectively. Oh my God. I wish Mike Madrid was here. We love to have this debate because he loves data and polling. Well, just, we, you just tell him how all the ways that he's wrong and he doesn't, you know, so he doesn't have a way to punch back down. So let me, let me be clear. All these number wonks and all these posters, some of them, most of them, my good friends, it's all a guessing game. And let me start with it just being a guessing game. Like I wish I was wrong. They're not guessing with the people that they talk to. That's in fact, as factual as polling is. They tell you what people that they talk to say, and it's absolutely right. The guessing part is, is building out a model. And as soon as somebody says they're building a model, then they've stopped really talking to real people for all of you folks at home scoring there. And what I mean by that is to get a poll 
done, you have to estimate what you think the turnout will be of white people, of black people, of brown people, of Republicans, of young people. It's all a guesstimation. And most of the time, because they take lots and lots of data again to make assumptions and build models and then have conversations with those people. So the more that you have people in the upper echelon of income, that means that you have a home that you probably own, you have a desktop computer, you haven't moved around a lot, you haven't lost your home. Uh, and so you're easier to contact and talk to. The federal government, other people know, Chuck Roach has lived in the same house in DC now for 10 years, right? I have a desktop, I see my privilege, but that's normally who we get to answer polls because it's easier to get to them. More younger people, more transient people, people that are renting, people that are getting their internet just off of their phones. Do you think people can find them? No, they're not included in this poll. That's why you saw so much of the Trump stuff that was wrong because Trump had inspired a whole new group of people to show up that nobody was tracking because they didn't quote unquote fall into the universe of an estimation of what they thought the turnout would be. When things rock along at an average pace and it goes up at the growth rate that it normally does, posters stay, you know, pretty close to where they're at because it's all within averages, right? So when you see these peaks of Obama, these peaks with Trump, these peaks in Miami-Dade, there's normally other factors that are in there, but these posters just are telling you what people that they get to talk to are saying. And it's absolutely, no poll is wrong. It's correct 100% based off of who they talk to. What I'm doing is pulling the curtain back and saying, look at who they're talking to. If the estimation on what the turnout is going to be is off, then who they talk to is right, but the formula is going to be messed up because the estimation was wrong. Right now in politics, we're trying to figure out in 2022, is it going to be a turnout more like 2018 in the last off year when there was a big spike because Donald Trump was in office and Democrats showed up in big numbers or more like 14? When it was low voter turnout, because nobody was really inspired to vote. There was no presidential election like now. And so those posters are trying to figure that out. And there's no way to know. We can guess. And that's what posters do. And, and my posters friends don't kill me. I love them. And they give you lots of insight on who they talk to that help run lots of campaigns around issues and even horse races. But just know that they're just telling you of the people they talk to. These are the results. I guess that speaks to something that we started off with is about, and, and then you touched upon it also throughout the conversation, where having people at the table, not just having someone that you could kind of check that box and yeah, we have our token brown person here at the table and then pat them on the head and, and tell them to leave the room when the, the real work starts, but to act, actually have folks like we talked about at the top, the folks that you thanked in, at, at right at the top of your acknowledgements in your book, it makes it that much more valuable to have those voices to say, what the hell are you talking about? This, this would never resonate with me, my friends, my family, right? The problem I found with most of this is that there's so lack of diversity in the polling realm. And I'm just mm. going to speak to the Democratic side. So if you have okay. the same five big polling firms who run all of the major polling of all the biggest races, then you have them all asking the same questions over and over again in the same exact way. So you get the same messaging by every Democrat. And then you start seeing patterns, Corey, if you're like me and a practitioner of shit that nobody really cares about, because again, it goes back to who is orchestrating this poll. If you have a consultant who lives out in the suburbs, who's a white man or white woman, who's making, you know, half a million dollars a year, God bless them. Like I, this is nothing against me disparaging them. Cause I make money too. This ain't about the money, 
This is about people that aren't connected to even start asking the right questions mm. because then the media consultant and the digital consultant on the campaign, who's also lives in the same neighborhood as the rich pollster are all coming up with questions to ask people that they need to win, which are poor Brown people and working class white people who had their truck repoed, who couldn't get their house remortgaged that you just described. None of them have lived through that or expect that that's one of the issues. So they stay in this little box of asking the same questions. What's the most important reason you're going to go vote? And that's important. But they, they, I just noticed all the questions are kind of the same. They're all about healthcare or they're about choice or they're about these issues that people think are the issues that people care about, but they're not from the community. So they really don't understand that. And we get a lot of this wrong in consulting on campaigns. Man, you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> now, I'd like to take a second. Uh, I won't hold it against you that on the episode of the Latino vote that just came out that uh, y'all didn't talk about California 27, which was California 25 in the last election. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to pick your brain now, right now because that's that's my district. So uh, Mike and I have actually talked about this district quite a bit. But uh, just just to reset for a second, Mike Garcia, Republican, beat Christy Smith by three hundred and thirty three votes in a district that had almost three hundred and fifty thousand people cast ballots. So if you're counting, that's less than one tenth of one percent, not one percent, one tenth of one percent. So the way that this district was redrawn looks like it. And to correct me if I'm wrong, because you, you have better information than I do, obviously. But it looks like it should give Democrat Democrats another couple points in their favor. But I, I was wondering if you knew more specifically about the Latino population here. Uh, it's a, the very northern part of L.A. County. Yep. So the district is over 30% Latino population and about that, that in turnout, uh, actually the population is more, so like 40, but only about 28 to 30% of the district is Latino voters. So in the last election, I dug into this district. I did a post analysis of all the congressional districts that we lost, which was, excuse me, all of them. Uh, we only won one marginal seat as Democrats. Keep in mind, all the consultants who lost all of those races have all been invited back to run all the top House races again this cycle, which takes me back to this is the problem. Democrats keep doing the same thing in the House races over and over again and hoping for different results. And it's not going to happen, at least in the Senate and in the governor's races with Democrats. They're doing things differently now and including lots of Latino operatives in what they're doing. But the House has not really changed in this particular race. I found it interesting that there was not very much Spanish language spending done. Now, before all of you jump on Twitter and tell me that Latinos speak in English, let me remind you that I'm a Latino here on this podcast speaking English, and you're right. And by large majorities, we consume information in English. But when if you want to know what priority a campaign is putting on Latinos, look at how much money they're spending on Spanish, because that's just a driving indicator of the overall strategy of what the campaign is. I interviewed the campaign manager there uh, in that race who just barely lost. I'm not going to name his name because I don't want to speak out of school, but he let me know that, you know, DC consultants came in and took over that campaign in the general election and that they had determined themselves that Latinos didn't vote at a high enough priority in that district to be of priority back to the point of a prime voter, right? So when you don't have folks even reaching out to Latinos at the level that you are white folks, then this is the way you, you lose those percentages of support or she would have won. 
Uh, I don't mean that all your communication has to be in Spanish, but there has to be a degree of cultural competency to know that you can't just walk away from that part of the electorate that is speaking Spanish that acts much different, as you know, Corey, than the whole other end of the district, which is, you know, a bunch of white upper class neighborhoods who don't have the same life experience as these Latinos. Yeah, it doesn't take a, a math degree from a, a, a Ivy League college to know that if you're if your population is 28 to 30 percent Latino and you lose your race by 333 votes, uh, you've missed a huge opportunity to move that needle. You move that needle one percent. You've done more than your job. But obviously the, the district is slightly different coming up. But uh, just that that overall thing, there's there's such a missed opportunity now. Digging a little bit deeper here, uh, if one of the candidates was listening, I, I have a couple questions along these lines. We're going to get some free advice from you, from, from a guy with 30-something years of experience. Uh, there's, I, know, I know that Mike hates this term, but there's the assumption by many that the Latino vote is, quote-unquote, monolithic. Uh, but that assumption tends to fall apart when you factor uh, other, when there's other factors involved, income in particular, so what issues and strategies were effective for your team in, in reaching a broad cross-section of Latinos in the Bernie campaign? And, it's, and then uh, in the general, you did such a great job in Nevada. So what issues and strategies do you think were effective? Well, let's talk about the strategies that are ineffective first. And that is when they think about Latino voters from the Democratic Party, we're thought of as just a field target. What do you mean by that, Chuck, a field target? Well, let me answer that for you. It is, they mean that if you talk to Latinos, that means you get a bunch of canvassers, a bunch of brown kids in a neighborhood, you pay them all 15 bucks an hour and you have them knock on all the doors of Latinos, you know, during early vote and just weeks before the election to make sure that they turn out because they just assume Latinos are going to vote at 70% for the Democrats. Well, that is good strategy, but that's not great strategy. That means you'll go knock on some doors, which is very important to do. We took a much different strategy with the Bernie campaign, with the Nuestro Super PAC, with lots of people that we work with. Let me stop there and tell you how people in the Democratic Party get large percentages of white people to vote for a Democratic candidate. They spend a whole bunch of money starting really early, talking to white people through several different apparatuses of where they're consuming information. It starts with TV. Again, love Media consultants in the Democratic Party love to run commercials in the suburbs, targeted to white women, white persuadable voters who all vote in these elections. It's return on investment. It's persuasion over long periods of time, not just weeks before the election, but months before the elections. We're already running camp campaign ads in Arizona, Nevada, in other states right now, targeted to folks to get them out. So you run TV commercials, then you run digital ads, you send them mail pieces. You have all of this information that's coming at these folks. And so it's coming at them through all these different levels. And guess what? If you spend a whole bunch of money talking to a whole bunch of folks, they'll show up to vote. I just started talking about money and Mike Madrid showed up. That's how it normally happens. <laughs> hey, we're 45 minutes into the conversation of Mike Madrid. I think, I think he overheard or had like that spidey sense that we were, we were figuring out all the ways that Mike Madrid's got it all wrong. I've been talking so much shit on Mike Madrid. I got to turn everything up now. 
I just came Ooh. to clarify everything, all the misinformation you've been hearing for the last 45 minutes, folks. So don't worry. I'm here. We're going to clear it all up for you. Oh, my God. <laughs> and for all of you that's listening, what I said about math and about how much better looking I am than him and smarter than him and all the ways I had beat his ass in every election, know that he's he's not going to be telling you the truth if he says anything other than that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for right now. We had a lot more to talk about. Mike just came in and, um, you know, we talked with Chuck and Mike together for about another half hour. And then uh, Chuck had to take off and Mike stuck around for another half hour. So we decided to split this one up. So we'll, we'll share the rest of that conversation. It's a ton of fun later this week. So be looking for that to drop either Wednesday night or Thursday as a part two. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend, tell a friend about talk politics and religion that killing each other. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. And you can even support our program through the patron app on our site. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week.